Hello, and welcome to Living the Culture of Life podcast. I'm your host, Colleen Haupt, and I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Close. And we're going to discuss a little bit of a follow-up to the previous episode with Father Bouquet, where we talked about euthanasia. This episode, we're going to address more of the details of euthanasia and what people may expect to encounter when preparing for end-of-life care. So, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for being here today. I had to travel a long way to get here. Oh, yeah, all the way across the hall. Um, so let's just jump right in. So where is euthanasia legal? Which countries is it legal in? And then, um, let's just start there. What countries have legalized euthanasia? Well, we've got nine jurisdictions in the United States, eight states in the District of Columbia. We've got Canada, the Benelux countries, uh, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. We've got Switzerland, uh, New Zealand, Spain, Colombia, and some of the Australian states. Okay. And um, some of the states that we have here in the United States, I believe, have also legalized assisted suicide, right? right. So which states uh, are those? Assisted suicide uh, on the West Coast. We have Washington, California, and uh, uh, Oregon, the People's Republic of Oregon. My wife and I used to live there for about 14 years. It's a crazy place. we got Vermont, uh, Colorado, Washington, D.C., and in 2019, New Jersey, Maine, and Hawaii. Uh, joined those for assisted suicide for a number of uh, reasons. And now we have eight states in the District of Columbia which have legalized assisted suicide. So it's definitely an issue that is getting to be more, coming down more legally on the states, I guess. It's more countries are legalizing it. And abortion, because of Roe, was kind of accepted for so many generations. This is a new battle, a new front that we have to fight on. It's exactly like it was before Roe v. Wade. Okay. When uh, some of the same states like California, Hawaii, and Colorado legalized abortion. And so we saw a patchwork quilt of almost the same states legalizing abortion back in uh, from 1960 to 1972. Interesting. It makes sense when you hear the states that those seem to be, because I know at least Vermont and California have um, things on uh reproductive rights on their ballots this November. Right. Um, so it's interesting that they have both the beginning of life, reproductive, they're attacking that, and also handling the end of life with mm. attacking it with assisted suicide. So jumping into things that people may encounter, our listeners may encounter when dealing with end of life issues, um, can we just explain a little bit of what the difference is between ordinary and extraordinary means of care? It's a phrases that get thrown around a lot when discussing this in Catholic circles and just clarifying what those are. Well, ordinary means of care is not medication. Uh, Everyone has a right to nutrition, hydration, and oxygenation. Uh, Extraordinary means could be almost anything depending upon the circumstances. For example, if someone is in the last few hours of life and something like dialysis is causing them a lot of pain and the removal of that dialysis will cause them to die, you're allowed to do it according to church teachings. Because the principle is we don't have to wring every last minute of life out of a suffering person. If a means is not doing them any good and causing them more suffering than not, then we can go ahead and remove it. Okay. Um, And so what's the examples of, I guess you just did an example of what extraordinary is. What would be the ordinary means of care that everyone's entitled to? Everyone's entitled to nutrition and hydration in particular. But we see some... uh, pro-euthanasia organizations like the former Hemlock Society uh, and others like a euthanasia society who are pushing to make those extraordinary means as well. 
So uh, we always see this redefinition of uh, terms by the culture of death, and that's one of the most powerful terms, uh, uh, weapons that they have. Uh, nutrition, hydration, and oxygen are basic human rights, and to take them away is a violation of those human rights until they do more harm than good, which is usually in just the last few hours of life. So, for instance, if somebody, if it's, like, painful to give them food and water and they're about to die, can you clarify that statement slightly, how that would apply to food? I've heard that is the example the most. Yeah, if you if they're in the last few hours and uh, they can't digest the food, uh, if they're really suffering just to receive some water and their throats are all closed up or something like that, and uh, you're quite certain they're going to die within the next few hours, it's illicit to remove those things. Okay. Um, and then how does this apply to euthanasia? I know that this these, I believe, from my understanding, is that these ordinary means of care is often what's taken away when it comes to euthanasia. Um, right. For instance, like all of the cases of people who had food and water removed before they, like, which was counted as an extraordinary means of care, but it really was ordinary means of care. Right. Well, uh, it helps to set up a framework of definitions here. Uh, and there's six different types of euthanasia. They're okay. very easy to describe them. Voluntary euthanasia is I want to die. Mm -hmm. okay. Non-voluntary is I'm incapacitated or I'm unconscious and somebody euthanizes me. Involuntary is when they say I don't want to die and they kill me anyway. And then for each of those, there is a direct or uh, active euthanasia where you kill a person, you have the intent to kill a person, and passive euthanasia where you neglect some kind of treatment to cause them to die passively. So the, um, the active would be like administering a drug that would right. kill them versus right. active is right. removing food or water. Right, okay. passive is removing food or water and allowing them to die of starvation and, uh, and thirst. And then, um, so that's kind of covering the basic ordinary and extraordinary. For um, when it comes to drugs, um, for like pain management, what if you're the drugs that you're administrating to a patient um, short, like shorten their lifetime slightly, but not significantly, unintentionally? Is that illicit or? Yeah, according to the 1980 Declaration on Euthanasia, which uh, was put out by the Vatican more than 40 years ago, it outlines the treatments that are illicit and uh, the acts that are illicit. So if somebody's in extreme pain and they're administered drugs that shorten their life, the intent is everything here. If the intent is to shorten their life, then it's not illicit. But if the intent is to uh, alleviate very severe pain, which is quite rare, and the person dies early, then that's illicit. But it has to be an insignificant amount of time that their lives are shortened by just a few hours. Okay. And then for the same thing with drugs, um, I know that one of the resource articles I was looking at when preparing for this podcast was talking about semi-unconsciousness and total unconsciousness. When are it drugs that cause those types of either semi or total unconsciousness, when are those um, able to be used? Well, it depends upon whether or not the person has had the opportunity to prepare their souls to meet God. That's what it's all about from the Catholic point of view. And if they're in severe pain, it is licit to uh, put them into unconsciousness for a period of time or even until the end of their lives if that pain cannot be alleviated by any other means. And perhaps even uh, semi-consciousness, which is kind of a twilight sleep where you could be conscious more at one time than others, then uh, that's also licit as long as the person's had the opportunity to prepare a soul to meet God with a clear mind. Okay. 
And so those are all things that somebody who's either caring for someone at the end of life care or if they're trying to prepare how they're going to be cared for someday should be taking into consideration then right. of what means of care they want, right. which ones they are required mm-hmm. to have because they're ordinary or which extraordinary means they want, and then what type of drugs they have. Right. Uh, usually these decisions are made by a proxy or an attorney, in fact. And uh, the various instruments, the uh, durable powers of attorney and post, which is physician uh, order for life-sustaining treatment, has a feature in which you can appoint somebody who shares your values to make decisions for you if you're not capable. Okay. Um, so why don't we jump, because you started with that a little bit, into the legal protection that people can have to protect themselves from euthanasia as it becomes more prominent all over the world. Um, so first to start, what is an advanced medical directive? An advanced medical directive usually has four features, and they should always be drawn up before the person uh, suffers a terminal illness or some kind of injury because if you don't draw them up ahead of time, then you don't know what's going to happen to you. So they have four components. One is the appointment of an attorney, in fact, who doesn't have to be an attorney or a lawyer. They can be someone who shares your values. The second part is what treatments do I want and which ones do I want to forego under which circumstances. The third is any information on uh, organ donation that you want to have put down. And the fourth is you have to have your signature witnessed. Um, So one of those is, I believe, a living will. So what can you explain what a living will is? And then we can discuss whether or not that's a good option. A living will was the first of the advanced directives. It was first put out by organizations like the Hemlock Society and the ACLU. And what they wanted to do is uh, they wanted to save health care costs and start to prepare the ground for people to accept the idea of euthanasia. So the living will is the oldest type, and what it does is it, it instructs attending medical personnel on what you want done under various circumstances. The great defect it had was is you can't tell what's going to happen to you really in the future. Uh, very few people can do that, and so your wishes might be contravened unintentionally by the attending physicians or the healthcare workers. So its great weakness is that it does not have someone who can make decisions for you who shares your values. Okay. And you said that that was originally put forward by the Hemlock Society. Isn't that a pro-euthanasia group? So it's Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's still, I guess you can write a pro-life one to... Uh, you like, can, you can. Okay. You, could, you can take the standard living will, and with the help of a lawyer, you can modify it all you want. Okay, that's right. Okay, was... so it's a lot easier than starting from scratch, but there are better instruments than the living will to work from, even though we have Catholic living wills by groups like uh, Patients uh, Care Council out in mm-hmm. Steubenville. We've got uh, the USCCB, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and the National Right to Life Committee have mm-hmm. pro-life living wills that have been modified to to meet the demands of people who want to be treated according to the uh, teachings of the Catholic Church. Okay. And then um, another one that was mentioned in the resource article on, um, and I'll link these articles to um, for our listeners, um, was a pulse, the physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. Is this helpful or is this one problematic? Is this a good option or? Well, I don't think it is because studies have shown they don't really help the patient or extend their lives because what it is is a direct order to the physician on what to do. No flexibility. And once again, uh, 
these things might be done without uh, an attorney in fact or your proxy who's there to help you perhaps uh, modify the orders of the physicians to your own benefit. Okay. And then I believe the last one was the um, DPA, the durable power of attorney. This seemed like it was the best option from what I was reading. Um, can you explain a little bit about this and why it's a good option? Yeah, the DPA refers to the person who can make your health care decisions for you. So ahead of time, you write up uh, as much as you possibly can, like you would the living will, what kind of treatments do I want, what treatments do I do not want, and under what circumstances. But the person who is... Uh, gets the durable power of attorney or your health care proxy mm -hmm. can modify those decisions according to the teachings of the church and your general desires. And all of this needs to be written down in the document. It doesn't have to be extremely long. Usually they're two to four pages long. Okay. So basically it outlines the general things that you want and then gives all of the power to somebody else who you've already chosen who would share your values. Right. Because a living will is a static document. And to a cer certain extent, so is the post. But a DPA is one of those things that is entirely flexible. And uh, that's something I'm going to have written up myself, modify what I've got already. And uh, also my wife is going to be doing this with one of our local attorneys so that we can make sure that someone uh, who is appointed to be our attorney, in fact, or proxy, shares our values and treats us with dignity. Okay. So kind of to summarize what we've been talking about it sounds like there's the three options generally for when someone is talking about end-of-life care so there's the living will the pulsed and the dpa and it sounds like the dpa is the most flexible and ensures right. the best treatment and then when you're coming up with those you should be looking into like specifying what you want as ordinary means of care or extraordinary and then right. if right. you're caring for somebody who's at their end of life you should be looking at are they receiving the ordinary means of care figuring out what the extraordinary means of care you'd like to have and making sure if they are getting drugs that are having causing unconsciousness, it should be making sure that their soul is prepared first. Right. A good pro-life attorney can walk you through this. It's not as hard as doing your complicated taxes. It only takes maybe 30 minutes to write out a really good DPA. And I'd urge everybody to get that uh, done, no matter how young you are, because you never know when the end is going to come. Mm-hmm. And do you have any final advice for our listeners who may be caring for loved ones at the end of their life? Any final thoughts? Yeah, it's not too hard to prepare for this, and I would urge everybody to go ahead and get a DPA or some kind of pro-life medical directive to get written up because I've witnessed myself what happens uh, to the loved ones of someone who is finally in a, a precarious situation. There's a lot of emotions a lot of things have to be done for preparation, and everything's just up in the air. It's just not the time to write a DPA, especially if the person who's the focus of that document is unconscious or in their last few days of life. Mm -hmm. I'd also urge people to read uh, the Declaration on Euthanasia and uh, the several pages on euthanasia in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There's not much material there. It'll really clarify things in your mind. It will also give you the reasons why the church teaches these things. And also I'd recommend from the NCBC, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, a very short book written in the 15th century called The Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying, which uh, I wish I'd written, uh, I wish I'd uh, read this many years ago, but it's a very short book. It's got four or five points in there from the purely Catholic uh, viewpoint on how to prepare your soul to meet God. 
So it won't take you very long to prepare for death. It won't take you long to write this document. I'd urge everybody to get it done now and get that off your mind. Thank you so much for talking about all that. And um, is there anything else? Is that your final thoughts for the listeners? Anything else you'd like to share? Or? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, awesome. And to our listeners, um, if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please drop in the comments what you'd like to have covered. We'd really like this podcast to be pertinent to your questions and to cover topics that will be helpful to you. And if you're listening on YouTube or Rumble, please remember to like, follow, and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of our audio platforms, please follow and share with your friends and keep on living the culture of life. God bless.